As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey listeners, if you love the show and you want to support this Anthro Life, you can go to anchor.fm and support us by either giving a dollar, five dollars, or ten dollars. They make it extremely simple and really easy to do, and we appreciate everything that you can offer to help us make this content great. And now, on to the show. Hello, 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 listeners. Good to have you here in this Tuesday afternoon. This is Anthropological Life. This is Adam Gamewell. This is Ryan Collins. And this is Anil Tripathi. Today we're talking about a topic that is near and dear, I think, to all of our hearts, um, that we've had some experience in different parts of our lives growing up uh, with graphic media. In this case, we're talking about comic books and graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of what inspired our show today is the uh, celebration of our good friend Batman. It's 75th birthday this year, isn't it? It is. Batman's turning 75, and that means he could probably be any of our grandfathers in this room. Great point. Which is pretty interesting that, you know, Batman was born in a time before uh, World War II, and in that era, the Batman that was, uh, you know, public and accessible to people was very different than the Batman we have today. He didn't quite have the rules about being nice, not using guns, and he would often hang villains from his bat plane or throw people out windows saying that they were probably better off that way. Hmm. And it's a great it's a great thing to think about just with, with the idea of Batman in general, right? Because uh-huh. right, he is 75 years old. The rules change over time. The social milieu in which Batman is immersed changes, as do our lives. And so what does it say about something like this kind of a superhero, this comic book character, uh, and then also about the graphic medium itself, comic exactly. books, that are, are really quite, you know, they're, they're, we're getting to the quarter of a century here. You know, we're moving closer to the next 100 years and, like, it's, it's really interesting to think about, you know, that this is, these characters stay with us, even though the times change. 
They right? do. And in fact, you know, Batman's become so commercially popular, along with a number of other superheroes, that we just can't seem to get enough of them. Well, Batman shows up in Legos. He's showing up right. in a uh, movie with Superman. And they've never been in a uh, live-action movie before uh, this point. So we want to see more. We want to see newer versions. We want to see something that fits a different generation or a different tone. And, I mean, this is coming after the large success of the previous Batman movies from the last decade. And we're already on to, well, we need a new one. We need something more. We need something now. Hmm. Interesting, because in a way, it almost seems to reject secularization theory, right? And saying that these heroes have such a long lifespan, you know, mm-hmm. right? you know like our religious stories almost, right? They right. can continue. Uh, and even though we thought they might have, you know, lost a place or there would be new figures that would really dominate these fields, it still just goes on. Exactly. And I think one of the things that really pulls in superheroes is that they kind of are, in some sense, like modern gods. They're religious icons in their own right. And Grant Morrison, a prolific uh, comic book writer who had an amazing run on Batman, who did Justice League in the 90s, who has done Animal Man and a number of other projects, including um, Superman, uh, which one was it? Superman All-Star. It's just terrific, terrific series. And he had a book a few years ago, a few years, uh, a few years ago called Super Gods. And the whole thesis of this argument was that these superheroes have kind of taken over the role of pagan gods and are circulating in the mythos of our day-to-day lives. Hmm. You know, uh, Superman being Ra, the sun god of Egypt, right? But then Batman taking the polar opposite role, being Anubis, the sort of lord of the night. Hmm. They almost create their own pantheon, right? I mean, it's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes these pantheons are created for commercial purposes. Right. Right, but then they also take this place as kind of a social fact. Very much. And, you know, uh, a lot of anthropologists have even studied this, and that symbolic quality. So Umberto Eco, a well-known semiotician, back in the 1970s with his earlier work, wrote about Superman and all the different mythos that Superman was uh, symbolizing. Hmm. So if you look at early, early Superman before he was solidified over continuing generations, 1938, and he is also, by the way, 76, just a year older than Superman or Batman. Hmm. So Superman was modeled after a very familiar character that most of us are very familiar with. He was an orphan who was sent away from a dying planet, or there was a threat to his planet, on a spaceship. We might often think about this instead in a different way. He was sent away from an area where uh, there was an immediate threat. He was put on a raft and washed down the river where somebody else found him, adopted him, and made him into something more where he could become more powerful. He could become a symbol of hope. And of course, I'm talking about Moses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great point. It reminds me of, um, in, in sort of our, our extended vocabulary here, is, is Joseph Campbell's work on mythology, right? Mm-hmm. And, and of course. His, particularly his book, A Hero with a Thousand Faces, right? And that there's these, these archetypal qualities. I don't think Levi Strauss would be too uncomfortable talking about archetypal qualities either, but there's these, these you know, qualities that, that I think you're pointing to that Moses embodies, that Superman embodies, that uh, that we recognize throughout time that right. speak to the, the human condition in some way, right? Whether it is just the idea of overcoming weakness or finding a new home or something, you know? Right. Um, it's an incredible finding just to think about that, right? That there's, there's these pieces, and, and this is perhaps one of the reasons that these endure with us. Um, even as they, as we were talking about Batman, and we'll come back to you, like how they change over time, too. Exactly. Right? 
And to get even more into that notion of the ever-changing myth, right? Batman, no, uh, sorry, I'm confusing my superheroes. <laughs> Superman, Superman stops being Moses at some point and becomes Jesus. Hmm. And that's solidified with his death in the 90s, his death and resurrection in the comic books, which has now become sort of a trope for Superman's stories, that that death is now factored into his version of being. And do you think that people's knowledge of, you know, the story of Jesus' life actually impacted their interpretation of Superman? Absolutely. And one of the things that factors into the original telling of Superman's death was uh, an illustration at the end that shows the, the body of Superman being held by Lois Lane. Uh, it's very much reminiscent of the Pieta, hmm. right? Uh, so, like, the, the sculptures by Michelangelo, Michelangelo and the number of other artist works that come after that, such as um, the death, not the death of Captain Cook, but the death of another uh, uh, sailor sort of privateer. That, no, no. no yeah, but the same type of theme just plays out again, deifying the, mm. the fallen in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, to come to the other side of the gender gap, too, like even Wonder Woman, who joined the DC pandemic. Right. So we have Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, kind of like the, the trilogy, right? Exactly. And she, so she she was invented, brought up around 1941. So we're talking, yes. you know, in the, in the World War II era. And much like Superman, too, uh, her original bad guy, she was kind of depicted fighting the Axis. Yep. Um, what's interesting, like, with her, too, to think about what, what Batman and Superman might be doing in contrast is that she's kind of known as you know fighting for justice love peace as well as sexual equality which is interesting because mm-hmm. um, you don't really think about batman and superman being like we need to have you know gender equality um they should of course but it's interesting to think about you know this is what, what a character did but then like superman too they're brought up in in the world of world war ii and they're they're depicted fighting and actually it's really interesting wonder woman she one of the bad guys during her early run is named genocide Hmm. And so it's like, you know, in some ways there's direct reference to, to obviously, World War II. Um, but it's interesting because, again, as we were saying, like, we're drawing from this, these archetypes as well right. as this history. Michelangelo's Pieta, um, as well as sort of circumnavigation of the globe and different, different navigational trips, as well as the contemporary moment. And superheroes, in some ways, particularly in this graphic medium, have this really interesting way of tying together the timeless and the very specific periodic, right? Like, exactly. both World War II and... This, you know, this sort of all-time human desires, needs, archetypes, or whatever. For sure. And again, you know, these characters, they're not just uh, affecting us, and we're not just reflecting back and thinking about the different uh, symbolic quality they have. You know, whether you take Superman as Moses, you take him as Christ, you take him as the sun god, he is something that's pulling from tons of different mythos uh, worldwide and globally. And in turn... You know, globalization has often or has impacted Superman, has transformed him into being a figure that is not just American, yeah. but he's you know printed in countless languages across the, across the globe today. Mm-hmm. Very true. Um, and and this thing in terms of like when we talk about these printings, of course, we are talking about uh, the visual medium of comic books, mm-hmm. of graphic novels, and so it's interesting to think about why these mediums and these characters are so successful together. I mean, of course, right. you can read a Batman or Superman novel i imagine but the primary medium we see them of course is in a visual pictorial right you know manner and uh you know it's interesting to think why do we want to see this versus necessarily just read text about it uh and uh, then kind of you know in the rise of when this happened again these came out you know world war ii the mm-hmm. is a little earlier superman a little earlier right um but certainly like right around this time in the united states uh, and as you're kind of pointing out grant morrison too like these came out in a specific history when times were uncertain right 
when, when we're obviously in a period of war. The um, United States doesn't even, the world doesn't the name of World War One. And uh, so, in some ways, we need these super gods, right? Exactly. In the same way, actually, that we see during the Great Depression, that um, that film, that movies, uh, the, the industry boomed. Mm-hmm. People didn't have a lot of money, but like, in some ways, what they talk about it offers some sort of fantasy escape. Right. right. And the fantasy is a key word I want I want to tag onto because this can have good and bad connotations as, as people kind of talk about. But like, um, both these something about the pictorial, whether motion picture or comic, there's something about that form that enraptures people, in the way the text can. But you know, they do different things there. It's true. Right. I mean, uh, this has so many um, historical antecedents to it. It's just incredible to really mm-hmm. think about. So when you talk about the context of the sort of leaving the Depression, but Depression era arising of these characters, they are taking on that fantastic quality. But that's also the same type of uh, media that we sort of see gods and other mythical uh, uh, figures in in the past. You you often see uh, like a picture of any type of Greek figure or Roman or Egyptian figure next to a line of hieroglyphs. So there's a line of hieroglyphic text besides a pictorial rendition. And then these panels go on to tell stories. And comic books really took advantage of that sort of way, that media of present, uh, presentation. Yeah. And again, just going off the character quality of fantasy and gods, you know, the early Flash was entirely modeled after Apollo. As well as um, you have the early Green Lantern, who's modeled after something that I found Curious. He's modeled after uh, Aladdin in from One Thousand and One Nights. Uh, the Arabian Nights, yeah, right. yeah. Hmm. Because the green ring is kind of like the genie, and it's his manifestation of his will or his wish, right? Hmm. So you have a different type of uh, mythos being played into that, rather than just being wholly Roman or Egyptian. That's fascinating, really. The the power of comic books to you know create and perpetuate these archetypes. As well as, uh, I think it's also interesting when we see older archetypes from actual religions, right, uh-huh. being brought into comic books, such as in India, uh, you know, the um, lots of magazines depicted the, the Hindu texts, the Hindu stories. Hmm. Uh, you know, there are so many comic books in India, the Mahabharata, uh, the longest poem, the epic poem, uh-huh. and it's had a huge impact. I mean, I think without a doubt in the last generation, Hindus in India have been educated and initially through comic books. Right. And that's incredibly powerful, right? Especially if you think about uh, what we've been talking about here with issues of social reproduction and how the archetypes themselves get reproduced. Right? Exactly. And, and again, there's something about this graphic media that, 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 that come through. I mean, even thinking about it as we're talking like a statues of Apollo or the Pieta, right? These, uh-huh. you know, we don't have Michelangelo scribbling graffiti on the wall saying Pieta, you know, Virgin Mary holds Jesus, but there's this very visceral and real-looking statue, right? And again, right. even it's manipulated in certain ways too. You know, her, her lap is really big, so he looks more like a child in her mm-hmm. arms. But really fascinating in, in that, like, there's something about this visual media that, that, it, that it, we attach to, and particularly these larger-than-life characters uh, are really well represented somehow in, in these images. You know, um, I'm gonna jump ahead in time a little bit, but think about that they, they, in celebration of Batman's 75th birthday, a, a website. Covers sci-fi news called Blaster. Did an interview with Neil Adams, and he was one of the main writers of ah, yeah. Batman comics in the '60s and '70s. And why he's why they're talking to him in, in this interview is because he was the guy responsible for moving Batman, like the Adam West campy kind of like you know jokey comics, to the more gritty, dark reality that we see. When we think of Batman with right. the Christian Bale films or just the Frank Miller comics, graphic novel Dark Knight Returns, 
the 80s, um, Neil Adam in some ways was one of the responsible persons for turning the tone darker. Right, and uh, if I could just tag on sure. to that, uh, Neil Adams was really responsible for bringing in some of the more modern villains we see too, like mm -hmm. uh, Ra's al Ghul. So the idea that a philanthropist or an evil organization could be pulling the strings from the background. So Batman became more of an international character, yeah. you know, tracking down the itty-nitty gritty things of society rather than just going after the Joker and getting, you know, playing with penguins or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Fair <laughs> point. I do, I remember there's this, this funny thing, I, I um, I did some research a couple of years ago, actually, on, on Batman and queer theory. And mm. So one of the one of the major comics in the '80s was Batman: The Death of the Family. You're familiar with it? Oh, very much. It was the first time that DC, in order to help sales, had a uh, a call-in number. And so there was a fight between Joker and Robin, and then you could call in and say whether Robin should live or die. Right. After the Joker traps him in the oh, warehouse and, and blows it up, and overwhelmingly people called to have him die. Uh, and it's a social experiment or whatever. But again, this is the second Robin. In the, 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 Batman can, his name is Jason Todd. Um, sorry if I'm giving a spoiler alert from the 80s. But, um, but the idea of this, of course, is that, they're, they're, again, the tone is changing very much in terms of what we're right. even trying to allow as part of this, this graphic medium. And there was also an appeal there, too, that people realized, well, the artists themselves, the writers, all realized that the comics were not really reflecting their desires, but they were reflecting what mm -hmm. society was comfortable with. And they thought that this was a tone. They had intended to kill Jason Todd from the start, but they figured that they yeah. would put this out there to see if, you know, test the waters. Is this what people would want? Is it what people are okay with? Can we go that direction? Yeah. And overwhelmingly, it was yes. That's fascinating, right? Especially when we already talked about, right, how in the 40s, uh, in the 30s, now, during tough times, people loved comic books. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So and then in those times, you know, comics are almost giving the morality a fixture to their life. And now, if you know there are these experiments happening to see if people themselves will determine what happens in the comic books, right? That could be very jarring for some people. Actually. Exactly. And the one of the so to parallel the death of Robin in 1989, we have the birth of Robin in 1940. Now, as I said before, when Batman was introduced, he was dark, he was gritty, he was killing people left and right. In fact, the first issue with the Joker, the Joker is seen very clearly dying, and then he just seems to appear again. He gets killed again. And this routine of killing the Joker sort of became a trope that was played out again and again and again. So fans were starting to complain that Batman was maybe too dark. That you know maybe all this killing and all this other violence and all the other terrible things he was doing was maybe a little too far. So they introduced the first sidekick, Robin. And he comes in as this boy who is trying to learn the ways of the superhero, right? Kind of tones it down. And it does get toned down. The audience shifts from uh, being completely adults to being children. So then you see Batman's shift start to take place as well. So it becomes not, we don't use guns, and then later on because we don't kill people. Mm -hmm. And you sort of see this pacification of Batman with Robin sort of being the underlying cause of that. Interesting. And then, of course, his death being parallel later on yeah. has that symbolic quality as well. That's interesting. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to think about that, the introduction and then the death of Robin, in some ways chronicling right, this, the, the rise away from the sort of darker Batman to the lighter Batman. And that's again because we saw the, the sort of in the 40s moved away from the dark stuff. And then we get in the 50s, 60s, we do get the kind of campy Batman. Right. Um, and then actually what's interesting is that so when Neil started writing, Neil Adams started writing uh, Batman in the late 60s and 70s is when it went darker again, largely because DC was talking about canceling. Detective Comics, the, the comic, as well as then Batman, because people weren't mm -hmm. reading it as much because it was you know, the campiness stopped resonating with, with listeners. I mean, in the 50s, 
in the high time era of, you know, father knows best and leave it to beaver, you know, kind of American, you know, you know, whatever TV days. culture. Right. Yeah. The, the little middle phase, you know, this, uh, the comics, you know, were read and they just kind of can't be happy thing, but then the, the tone kind of shifted. Um, also in this time, I think it's really worth thinking about is, is, um, the guy named Frederick Wortham, who's a, a child psychologist. He, he was doing some writing at this time and, and, uh, Again, comics were not necessarily overly, you know, we're obviously pretty enthusiastic about them, but they weren't quite, you know, they weren't overly well-received at first, and people weren't quite sure about them uh, when when they first came out. And so some parents were worried in the same way they might be worried about certain films coming out now or something or certain media. Um, you know, is Twitter really good for our kids and kind right. of thing? And so comics at this time in the 50s were kind of seen, they might be sort of deviant. They may produce some sort of deviance. And so actually, Frederick Wortham, child psychologist, did some research in, in published a book that uh, the title was you know something to do with like the uh, the way that comics create deviant children and so then comics slowly became banned in different places mm. um, because of this guy's research and then you know over time uh, and that and, and, I mean I guess the point is in some ways that stigma still kind of exists if we think about that the, you know comic readers today obviously don't think that but the idea that comics are not quite as literate as literature oh yeah right? as, mean, as fiction or something this right? is this is an incredible powerful idea especially when looking at so many different cultures i mean looking at how comics are treated in japan is very interesting right in in a, in a way it's very socially acceptable a lot of places i mean you have restaurants that so many places that have comic books that you can just take out and start reading mm. but at the same time there's also an association with comic books with darker elements right i mean you have an anxiety about otaku's you know, people, uh, you know, who'd be older, who'd just spend all of their time on comics mm -hmm. uh, and anime. So you have this this uh, type of contrast. Yeah, it's in, and so, I mean, with Wortham, too, I think that's a great point. Like, he, he's talking about what are the, the kind of ways. That he, he wasn't just saying comic books in general, but the things they show, because, of course, like, uh, boys tend to be overwhelmingly attracted to comics. And so, of course, you know, Batman, as you said, Ryan, that, that used to use guns or they would kill people. And like, so right. his argument was that we'd see these images visually and, and and I keep saying visually, sorry, not textually, you know, but graphically. You see these images, weapons being depicted, whether they're smoking a cigarette or something. What this, in this, this, obviously comic books are still with us today because they, they speak to us in a deeper sense than this, but it did lead to a comics uh, ethics board. Mm. And so actually in DC and Marvel and the big two, and of course, you know, Dark Horse and IDW, the smaller ones still have to, they still have to go through this sort of board, but you can't have certain, you can't have profanity, certain kinds of weapons, nudity, right. sex, drugs, prostitution, like there's certain things. That normally can't, but this is why other comics that we'll talk about a little later, like Persepolis, are so important. Right. Um, because they don't have to follow these sort of standards, but again, they existed for like this sort of the middle way American exactly. appropriateness of certain kinds of comic books. Now, that comics code that got created out of uh, resulting from all of this is pretty interesting to consider in the larger historical context. So there is a counter argument to creating the comics code in the first place, and that's that while comics may have been showing these graphic descriptions of things that could be taken as violent, they were also usually showing things that were very socially progressive. Mm -hmm. They were portraying that, you know, it would be a victory at the end of a comic if um, women were getting treated equally and their rights were starting to be pushed forward, mm -hmm. or it would be seen if, uh, you know, racial issues are starting to become more and more uh, visual, because especially with the creation of the Black Green Lantern and, you know, so many other mm -hmm. African-American figures, it got more and more persistent. And comics were pushing these things as good, you know, these are what right. people need. In the 80s, uh, comics were some of the first things to approach AIDS as something that was not, you know, manifest 
specifically in homosexual men, but this was a disease that needed to be taken care of and you shouldn't have biases towards people. So mm -hmm. all these progressive things were pushed forward by comics. And, yeah. and the comics code itself was actually in some ways uh, preventing some of these things from happening yeah. because you know people were saying, well, it's too new wave, it's too progressive, we don't want that idea to happen. Yeah. And that actually caused Marvel Comics to abandon the comics code. Interesting. Yeah, and so, I mean, of course, it raises questions about censorship, right? It's right. Like, it's like the question is, what are we trying to, to censor here, right? And as you're saying, Ryan, like, there's a, there's a, a double-edged sword here. You know, some of it might be okay, but other, other parts of it, of course, were maybe blocking some other things. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, what, what really are we trying to do? And so, again, of course, in the anthropological position, right, whenever we look at censorship, we're trying to figure out right. you know, what story is being told, what stories are being silenced. Uh, I mean, again, in, in like a, another example that I'm thinking of, of course, is the creation of the X-Men. Yes. Marvel Comics, right? I mean, even the idea that X-Men is one of the first comics to handle the idea directly of there being mutants, or let's, I mean, let's put whatever you want in that category, others in society, which then, then you know, the mainstream sort of denigrates and says, these guys, we don't, we don't know them, we don't, we don't feel like we control them, they, they threaten us in some ways, right? Uh -huh. um, and of course, you know, it's done in this fantastic way, these mutants have special powers. Um, but it's really, I mean, in, in your right, it takes head on this idea of social inequality and like how it's exactly. just perpetuated in society. Um, but it does so in this very creative way that they can look at, let's think about the step outside of the bounds of, of you know, foot in, there's some feet in reality. But again, right. there's also this fantastic element to it. Exactly. And it gives us this extra space. I think ways. also what's fascinating about this, right, is that, uh, you know, through these mediums, it's almost, it's so much more powerful of a moral force than just listing out morals and telling them to people. Mm. Right. Right. You know, we, right. as human beings, we almost, we love to learn through stories. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, uh, this can be such a more effective means of changing the minds of people. Exactly. So the power of, you know, the content of these comics and these media is, you know, incredible. Exactly. Because usually at the base of these type of comics, at least the ones we're talking about in sort of the American comic industry, you know, it's uh, really centered around the fact that they're all heroes. At some point mm -hmm. in time, they're, you know, they are heroes regardless of what happens on their personal stories regardless of what's going on in the social world around them, or whatever individual struggles they might be going through. Like in the 70s with the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, yeah. uh, Green Arrow was constantly battling uh, drug and heroin addiction. Wow. And that was a huge progressive movement, right? That <laughs> They have this as one of the main heroes who's battling his own personal corruption, is the way they put it, but he was trying to do things right, but he couldn't. He also had to live with the fact of what he was witnessing and resorted to drugs and then holds himself out in the comics. Sounds very mm -hmm. similar to Sherlock Holmes. Very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's a great point, too. I think that, and uh, I'm going to come back to Neil Adams one more time. <laughs> Just because uh, the, the interview they gave us, we'll post on the website, of course, is really interesting. And one of the, the things that uh, the interviewer asks him is, why do you, because he, he, he did Batman comics, so why do, why do you like Batman over Superman? And, and he says, well, honestly, I don't, I don't consider Superman to be a superhero. He goes, he's more like, a, as you said, he's more like a god. It's kind of what Ryan said. He goes, but I think of, you know, Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes as they have a foot in reality. Yeah. And like that, Batman does too. And, and there's something about these kinds of characters, Sherlock Holmes, Batman, that while they do have fantastic elements of their stories, they're things that we can relate to as people. I mean, Superman, of course, is just a quintessential good boy scout, you know, for right. the most part. There's, of course, Bizarro Superman and, like, different Earth 2 Superman sure. stuff that come up later. But the main guy is, is you know, this uncorruptible goodness, you know. And, of course, there's a really fantastic comic, uh, Superman Red Sun, yes. that hypothesizes if, what if he crashed in Russia during, during the USSR instead of the U.S.? Because in some ways, you know, he's made as you know, an American hero, but think about it. 
course, he could have landed anywhere. He could have been maybe. the U.S.'s ultimate other. Right. right. The yeah. And, and, and he is in this, this sort of alternate universe. It's really wonderful to think about. But, uh, but I mean, the idea of like this this relatability that we can we can sort of relate. And I think in Red Sun helps us then think, okay, well, he could be. It could have been otherwise. But Batman and Sherlock Holmes in this case, uh, you know, have these sort of human qualities that, in some ways, is it easier for us to latch onto them or? or you know, I mean, does it explain their popularity or their popularity in some ways different? I mean, uh-huh. For Adams, it does, but it's it's an interesting question. You know, it's like how do we relate to these again? Because as we're saying, there there are archetypes that we build these with, but again, there aren't just archetypes, of course. Right? right? People internalize these, embody these ideas, these characters. They watch them grow over the years. You, Ryan, your own collection of Batman expands some decades. Exactly. Yeah. You know? See, there's more to it than just than just superheroness, right? Exactly. The stories they expand upon previous stories, but then at some point in time, uh, a lot of the comic industries uh, have realized that you can't rely upon all the previous stories to create a fully understood mm-hmm. uh, context for the current stories. So that's forced them to press the reset button of sort. So every yeah. couple of years, every decade or so, Marvel does this more than DC, but they will uh, start everything over at issue one and then go for about 10 years to see where the stories develop. That's not that they'll do a complete retelling, but they'll give you enough context to say, we know the origin story relatively of Spider-Man, you know, of, of Superman, of Batman. Those elements usually don't get changed, but how the stories progress out and how they might uh, have progressed in a modern context, in an up-to-date context, is you know, quintessential to keeping people involved, to making these myths continue to develop. It's fascinating. It almost sounds like an oral tradition, uh-huh. matter, except that it's written down. It's, uh, <laughs> right, yeah. You know, it, it, it almost seems that through doing this, uh, you know, these comics almost show a realm of creativity that exists within structure. Mm. Right? The fact that these archetypes, these motifs can continue, but then it, they open up possibilities, right? Like they might have the same situation, but a different outcome occurs. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's again, why if you think about it, um, Again, you know, my, my research is in, in the Andes in Peru and Bolivia, and um, one of the most fascinating things about Quechua storytelling uh-huh. is that there are, like we're saying, there are certain elements that you're going to find in a story. In this case, like one of the most common ones is the trickster fox, which you may have heard if you know anything from Native American myths, that the fox is a pretty common character in a lot of uh, Pan-American right. uh, folklore. And this character shows up in many ways, and, and similar things happen to him. They're, they're actually not uh, family-friendly, uh, but they involve genitals being cut off and... and hopping around by themselves and, and uh, finding them or not. And, and As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Yada, yada. So there's a lot of, and like to, to us, of course, this doesn't count as our comics code. You couldn't see this in Batman. But the point is these, these same elements will show up, but again, the endings change in the comics. Not the mm-hmm. comics, but the stories themselves. Like it's the idea that a skilled storyteller can weave in the elements that you're always going to see. And of course, these allude to other bigger issues of, of fidelity and, and be careful who you let in your house, et cetera, et cetera. But again, these elements may come back you know, again and again, but again, a master storyteller can then change how the story ends. And so you may not, you may say, oh, I recognize Fox, but what's going to happen? You don't know. And this is a really interesting idea to parallel with, with what we see in the comics, right? We even see revisiting of themes, right? Villains, uh, situations, but uh, you know, the we don't know how it's going to end. And again, does that make the emphasis about the ending or about the story itself? I mean, both really. It's like a master storyteller can take you on the same journey fourteen different ways, right? Or infinite different ways, right? And it's very interesting to think about how villains have sometimes developed and how we uh, tend yeah. to actually like some villains we like some villains because they're villains and then they start taking on more and more qualities of becoming darker and darker and darker so an example i would use there would be the joker you know the joker in the 1960s very campy very Mm -hmm. ridiculous not really a villain not even really a main threat to batman but just kind of comical to becoming this dark sinister murderer who is like the grimiest of grimy notions of what society could be and it's terrifying it's truly terrifying but then you have other characters like Lex Luthor, who starts off as the complete antagonist of Superman. And today, we're actually having him take over as the leader of the Justice League. Now, is he mm. still Superman's antagonist? Yes. But what about this character has forced us to consider he might actually be a hero? He's a complicated It's a very complicated character. Who's developed over such a lifespan. Exactly. And, you know, as we've talked about the development of these characters, with Superman being more of a god, right? So the big reason right now is, well, Superman's not there. Mm. Superman is removed. He's somewhere else. He's elsewhere, yeah. Exactly. Mm. I mean, let's, let's, uh, let's think, too, uh, how these come. I mean, we can think globally, too, right? I mean, like, right. I'm thinking of Japanese manga, um, as well as, as Neil, we were talking before the show about different Indian comics that you, you, know, you read, and that's how, how some kids are raised. Uh, another issue I want to think about with this is, is actually, which just occurred to me during the show, actually, is that a lot of children's books are illustrated. And the right. notion of illustrations with things, I mean, so it's like, again, we wouldn't call a kid's book of how to cross the street with pictures a comic book necessarily, because it's, it's a different, but at the same time, it's doing the same thing. Yes, not? absolutely. It's um, interesting also, though. I mean, there are certain types of anime that have you know, just such a variety of topics. Like there's yeah. one anime that was actually made based off of a, a business school book. Huh. This uh, organizational theory by uh, Peter Drucker. 
And yeah, they made a comic teaching you how to manage. It's about this girl who manages her school's baseball team. Wow. Uh, and so this is a massive anime. It's incredibly popular in Japan. Hmm. So people find it as such an easy way to learn business right. management concepts. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's, it says something about, like, because in some ways the picture plus the, uh, plus the text conveys, it's like not, it doesn't convey information faster, but in a different way, right? That it may help you, as you said, like it may... It can help you remember. Yeah, it helps yes. you remember more. Oh, that's right, the person was standing, you know, with their, their hands raised and they said that, that image or something, you know. Um, there's something about it, you know. I mean, and even the popularity, of course, of, of Japanese Japanese manga, right, or anime in terms of yeah. Dragon Ball Z or Cowboy Bebop or whatever. Again, these are these are cartoons, but I mean, they made comics of all of them as well. Exactly. Um, Most of them started off as comics, right? And they, yeah, the television. I guess they made it to the United States in TV form. You're right. They, they began <laughs> nice. in these comics. Um, and there's something you know, something to say about this incredibly popular. And so, uh, I bring these up because I want to juxtapose the idea, right, that Frederick Wortham was talking about comics making deviance. These ideas didn't even touch Japan or India or other places, right? right? And actually, in, the, in in places um, in Iran, Iraq, we might see newer things too. I mean, even though I've mentioned Persepolis a few times, right? That's a wonderful book that's sort of about coming of age during the Iran Iraq War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's an interesting topic for schools because again uh, I've read different controversies over because I mean it talks it's got profanity it's got the violence in it you know, it talks about self doubt and, and uh, sort of coming of age as a girl during the, uh, the Khomeini revolution and stuff and so there's this really interesting time frame of when it's written and it's sort of an autobiography as well uh, and it's you know it's been taught in seventh to tenth grade this sort of right. you know uh, back and forth of when this should be done and, and some schools ban it. Some schools say we need to have it. So interesting to have, like, and of course, banned books aren't anything new. Right. But there's a comic book on this now. This is, I mean, this is actually a graphic novel, and of course, the difference, right, is that it tends to be the novel length that is graphic. Whereas they the comic book tends to be short. They, did, well, they, made a, they made a film, too, yeah. yeah. Um, but the idea, again, it's like theme wise, of course, it deals with, you know, female coming of age, which is a usually underrepresented topic in, in comics, so it's great to have that. And then on top of that, it deals with a very controversial, uh, in the United States, of course, like life in the quote Middle East. It seems like this other exactly. place. Exactly. Um, and then, and on top of that, right again, we're seeing it in high school. It's a really wonderful and interesting sort of interjection to think about. Like, how do we see the global in this case coming to the local, and why that comic book versus, for example, I mean, Dark Knight Returns, very different, of course. But, right. Um, or the, what we might call like this is a slice of life story versus uh, a fantasy or superhero. Story exactly. Or well, even blurring those genres a little bit more. Uh, one graphic novel that I, I love. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, but I've seen it appear a number of times as uh, a proposal for high school reading list, and that's Mouse. Hmm. If you guys have uh, ever oh, yeah. read it, it is just fantastic. But it's a graphic novel, um, and I can't think of who it's written by right now. I'm blanking. Uh, we'll get back to that. Yeah, we'll post it online at least. Uh, but in the story, you have uh, a man reflecting upon his parents' stories and experiences in World War II and uh, their eventual... Uh, incarceration in uh, a German uh, death camp. And it's written by Art Spiegelman. Thank you, Adam. (laughs) And this is, it's just an extremely emotional tale because it's not only reflective upon the memories of his father and of his mother and the life that they could have had, Mm. but it's also reflective upon his own life growing up. So how these influences impacted him as a child without realizing that this made him different. And it's a really powerful story that's just uh, fantastic. And in the, in the story, all the uh, the Jews are represented uh, by mice. They're all mouses. 
yeah. you know, the story being mouse, and the Nazis are cats. Yeah, interesting, right? And so you have this antagonistic relationship, and then, of course, I think the allies at the end end up being dogs, chasing <laughs> away the cats. So it takes, you know, almost such, uh, you know, basic and, you know, well-known children's stories, right, and how we right. see animal interaction, but then projecting it onto such a serious issue and such a serious history. Exactly, and it's a personal reflective tale that's also taking on all these mm. huger structural things and also being a historical block in and of itself. Yeah. yeah. One thing that, that strikes me about these these kinds of comics to, to, that I wonder about, um, that they, they have such a the, you know, capacity to really strike a, a, you know, a, a chord of the human heart, right? They get to the, yeah. they get the core of experience that we experience of terror, these, these historical events that, uh, you know, rocked our worlds, our grandparents' worlds, and right. ours, you know, or our parents' worlds. And uh, something akin to, like, why making this sort of a, a, a graphic visual medium versus a textual story? I mean, because Alien by Cell's Night is, of course, an excellent text, too. Right. And these tell different stories. But, like, there's something about, for, and this is, again, me, me espousing this idea, but, like, uh, you know, traditionally, when, when we when reading would happen, it would happen in a group. Like someone would read, they could orate to somebody else. The same uh, thing as storytelling, even if you're reading it. But then, you know, throughout time, the the idea that the individual could read and read the text right. becoming a personal item, um, you know, in some ways pulled away from. Uh, there, there's just this sort of vaunting of the, the written text itself. But to me, it feels like you know, a comic medium uh, or a graphic medium offers this way that you can share the text more so than. than Hey, check this page out versus like we can look together. Exactly. Um, it doesn't have to be like that, of course. But it, to me, in some ways, it, it, it evokes almost more of a communal sense of reading. It's like more easy, it's easier to come together around, around images. And it kind of, it like uh, almost, you know, filters down ideas. Yeah. But I think an interesting thing to add to this conversation would be uh, the phenomena of business comics, hmm. right? Like hmm. the Grant's interest observers and putting out comics forever, uh, the New Yorker, business uh-huh. comics, right. yeah, all yeah. of these things. That are really bo- boiling down almost social phenomena or social histories within financial markets. Right, that is interesting. And I wonder. I mean, that's. I mean, it's a good testament to the fact that, of course, because when when you hear the word business comic, you don't think, oh yes, yeah, of course, yeah. right. That's next to Batman for me. Right. It's, in some way, <laughs> it's a completely you know undeviant thing. Right. right? Exactly. It's, it's like completely. You know, it's this work attitude almost that's being put into comics. That's mm-hmm. true. And I, I used to remember reading Newsweek as a kid and then seeing, well, they have the political comic section of their magazine. And you would see mm-hmm. satire about, you know, what's going on with President Clinton and um, uh, Bosnia, for example. I'm just dating myself with that one. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but yeah, those no. comics, are, they're very important, right? Because it, it, they can tell you what's happening fairly quickly exactly. also. I mean, if you read through these, you can really get up to date about what is being really being thought about in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even like the New Yorkers or the Economist, right? They, you know, like, there'll be a person there, there'll be a word on their person that says Democrat or you know, right. or, or the UN or something. You know, so they'll be even interesting. Like they, they use an image of a person, but they very clearly are drawing an illusion. Or be like, it'll be an elephant or a donkey, right? Mm-hmm. It'll give you. You, know, you have to draw your context clues of what they're talking about. And it's interesting to talk about how some media, or well, not some media, but some stories might actually do better as a comic, as a visual, than they might in other forms. So we're talking about the uh, the business comic or the political comic, the satire, but also some novels. A lot, you know, there's a huge oh, yeah. trend these days to graphic see novels novel. becoming graphic novels as opposed to right. movies or TV shows. You know, Stephen King's Dark Tower series is now being redone mm. as graphic novels. Uh, Anne Rice's vampire stories have been uh, infiltrating, you know, comics as well. So 
it's interesting that this is starting to happen, that that outlet might be better. Mm-hmm. And we do have that communal aspect. We can pass that around. We can share comments right. with friends, and we can talk about the story mm-hmm. afterwards. And I think another aspect of this that we often tend to forget when we see pictures with little bit of text is that to write out the descriptions of the scenes, to write out so much mm-hmm. more about how the comic is to be drawn, they're as thick as novels. You know, a single right. issue of Batman every week is over 100 pages of written work. You know, people are working tirelessly and continually making these things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're not, they're not, they're certainly not small works. And I think one of the, one of the points you're kind of, you're hitting towards that, that's striking me is that, um, as we've been saying that, like, that we're seeing these novels being adapted, uh-huh. uh, text novels into, into graphic novels, as well as there's, there's a lot of work that goes in, a ton of work that goes into, you know, making a comic book. But, but with these visual media is that, again, uh, there may be some pushback because it's saying, well, we can't turn Jane Austen into, into right. graphic novels. But again, the, <laughs> but again, that hinges not upon that you're going to lose the nuance necessarily of the, of the story, but that, you're, that there's, a, there's a, uh, you know, a holding up of the text versus there being images. Right? Yes. There's something better about text. Now, I mean, admittedly, I think we all know like, they, they can do different things. Like, you, know, you can describe differently through text than you can through images. But nonetheless, I mean, we as human beings, there's something about uh, that we recognize a glance or like a, you know, a furtive glance from somebody or, or an angry face or a smiley face that you don't need to say, you know, it smiles subtly. You know, you can look at this. And I mean, I'll make right. a, a quick plug. I mean, just the, 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 the new comic now, the Star Wars, that's you know, it's a retelling of George Lucas's is the original screenplay for Star Wars. Um, the artwork in that is, is some of the best I've seen in, in recent comics. I mean, the images of the faces, um, there's, there's sometimes minimal words in the pages because the art of the faces and the, and the humans and the aliens that they work with, uh, are so well rendered mm-hmm. that, uh, and that's one of the things that, that actually, if you read the back, they talk about. It's, it's really one of the, it's astounding to see these sort of, you know, faces of just these subtle glances looking at each other, like one eye is kind of shifting, you can tell, or uh, surprised because you're being shot at by TIE fighters or something. But, uh, you know, again, of course, there's different art styles we can see with these, right? Exactly. Some are more cartoony, some are going for more photorealistic, some go somewhere in between. Um, or even the way that we depict heroes, right? You know, right. Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman as these, like, massive bodies. Right, like these guys are jacked. Wonder Woman's jacked. I mean, like they're huge. Um, they're probably also all like six, you know, six seven. But like, I mean, you know, they all, you know, they all can, they all can all bench like a truck. You know, I mean, Superman obviously can, can do it, whatever. But, um, yeah, he can move planets. <laughs> yeah, he can move planets. Yeah. But, but even the idea, like that, these 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 bodies, like the way we choose to depict superheroes versus again, like Persepolis is very interesting, much more stark, black right. and white style. I mean, it's it's really great because if you think about, I mean, we see these kind of nuances in textual writing too. I mean, Jane Austen writes differently. From Charles Dickens, right? Writes differently from Stephen King, writes differently, uh, you know, from Margaret Fuller. It doesn't matter. I mean, like, but we see these. It's, it's interesting to watch these also in the graphic media because it's it's in some ways more apparent right away. Right. You know? I think this is a really fascinating point to think about what are the different types of communication with it from written text mm. versus comic form, or you know, yeah. with picture. Exactly. Uh, a lot has been thought of, you know, from the communicative perspective. Oh, in Japanese culture, people use emoticons a lot more. Yes, yeah. texting back and uh-huh. forth. And the idea is that emoticons capture so much of you know the body language mm-hmm. that's within Japanese culture. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And so it's interesting, right? If you think about how body language can almost be captured through picture mm, right. uh, versus the text, which, you know, we can visualize the body language, but we mm. don't have that experience of looking and seeing and reacting right away. Right. Language. Right. And there's in some ways that's uh, yeah, it's like a step removed from the, the intuition, right? In the text, I mean, well, mm-hmm. oh, we could learn to read too. But yeah, you're right. If you see an image of somebody smiling, nobody needs to tell you this person is smiling. Right. And it makes me think of, uh, again, Batman Incorporated. This was a mm-hmm. series that went on for a number of years and concluded last year. And uh, in this series, spoiler alert, uh, one of the Robins, Batman's newest Robin, uh, dies. Uh, Damian Wayne, who's supposed to be Batman's hybrid clone son. Now, we don't need to focus on that, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, he, the scenes where he is depicted you know, in his final battle, they show they're often uh, without words, right? There aren't any words. You're just watching the visual unfold, and then some of the panels will be done all in red or all in black. And that really emphasizes something mm-hmm. different, something emotional, changes that are happening, the sort of dire setting. And there's an issue following that one where there's absolutely no text. There's just mm-hmm. panels. There's just you know, close-up visuals of people's faces showing the emotion that people have or their connections with others, or you're seeing droplets of rain on one panel. So it's almost like you could hear it. You can sense what's going on, but you don't need any words to express it. That's a completely different format of communication. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's really, I think it's interesting to look at this and see, uh, you know, also how these different forms of communication are viewed. Mm-hmm. Right? Almost visual communication and body languages seem to be almost an innate propensity, right? When you think about autism, one of the tests for autism, right, is how well people can read other people's emotions faces right so this is seen as an incredibly natural form of communication yeah i mean that's and that's why the emoticons are so interesting they're emojis right because as you said they sort of get at uh japanese ideas of body language right and the the question of course is too it's like what is japanese body language versus american body language versus whatever you know and uh but i mean even because we are seeing i think a lot of you know also because texting has become such a common medium of communication versus phone calls emojis have really taken off in the United States as well. Um, and they're just kind of fun to use. You can have like a little yeah. party balloon and a cat's face if you want to. Just have a cat party. Um, but it says something. You know, there's something about like even that, that in some ways, an, another way to express language, as you're saying, right? Or emotions or ideas or whatever. And there's something about that uh, that I think is attractive. I mean, even the idea that because like Chinese language, these are characters. You know, I mean, so, so it's like English alphabet too is characters. But again, we have graphic writing, you know, and like these letters represent syllables that we say, then we make words. In Chinese, like a character is a word, 
right? right. So it's different. They've got they've got a ton more characters than, than English alphabet. Uh, and even thinking about that, like the way that writing itself works, um, what's being conveyed there? Because I mean, I imagine I don't read Chinese. I know, I know you're working on it, but it'd be interesting to see some sort of Chinese comic books to see sort of what's depicted as text, what's depicted as images. Because again, we have the characters. It says house. But if you draw a house, you need the character there. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. I, don't know. I think it's interesting also with that to think about how the characters themselves, you know, can be, have been changed in Chinese mm. culture, like can become even art form. Right. Right. The idea of calligraphy, calligraphy is an art form. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, right, if you thought about that in comic form, because I would assume that sometimes even the way that you even write the letter uh, or the character would actually convey emotion mm. within that character, especially if it's seen as an art form, right? right? And then thinking about kind of an equivalency in American comics, I would almost think how, you know, sometimes they actually change the font. Right, yeah. Kind yeah. of our font change is similar to the, the artistic form in calligraphy. Absolutely. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. And speaking to this whole notion too of, you know, um, you know, the written word as being art, you know, ancient Maya script was uh, logosyllabic and logographic, right? So you have the ability to have a glyph that states a word all by itself. It's a pictograph, right? It's just showing you a picture, but it represents something else. But you could also represent that in the same way that we do today by breaking it down into constituent parts and have a totally different glyph that means the same thing. But that's broken down in the syllable as opposed to just being a photo representation. So you have an artistry in how you are going to render different concepts through, or the same concept through different uh, media forms. Hmm. And that's, that's a key thing to think about. Even if like, there's, there's an interesting uh, documentary that, that came out, um, I don't remember if it was recently or not. It was semi-recent. I guess it came out, yeah, it came out last year on PBS called Superheroes, The Never-Ending Battle. Uh-huh. And it, it deals with, again, this enduring idea that we have these different forms of media, whether, in, I mean, it's almost like thinking about a documentary of short episodes about comic heroes and about superheroes themselves is form, it's like mental calligraphy, right? Uh-huh. It's like we're, we're, we're highlighting so many forms of media, um, or Henry Jenkins talks about transmedia projects, like we're seeing comic books, uh, web webisodes or web shorts, television programming, uh, and actors playing these, uh, you know, Christopher Reeve playing Superman, right? Christian Bale playing Batman, um, you know, these, these, inter- these inter- Linda Carter playing Wonder Woman, right? These, we have these so many kinds of transmedia. When, when he says transmedia, he means he's like, you know, saying we have comics, films, video games, uh, novels, if you want, you know, television shows, webisodes. These, these, so many things come together around the same idea that we have this, this universe that's created. I mean, there's action figures, right? Uh, lunch boxes. I mean, tons of media. Oh, yeah. so Bed sheets, shampoo. Engage, right? Yeah. I mean, so many objects, material culture. Right. I mean, especially even if you think about virtual culture. Mm, yeah, and video games are made out on these things. Right. Oh, yeah. That's a great you point. Know, that's it's another even just you know another form of reacting. Right. And, exactly. and, and uh, even the, even the idea of, of digital comics, right? That we see so many things are right oh, online, yeah. whatever that means. Quote, no unquote, longer know, having like, the uh, flipping of the pages, but having something right. digitally in front of you. Right. And even you can even make it you know look looks like it's flipping the pages if you want. Exactly. To, but I mean, Comicsology is a really wonderful website that. Um, Aims in some ways. I don't know if they're wonderful or not, but it's a, it's a good way. They've got a lot of resources. It looks like they're aiming to become like the Amazon, better for worse, right? Of of comics, digital comics, and uh, they started doing this as an independent sort of trying to help independent publishers. You can get IDW or Dark Horse or other smaller stuff, Vertigo. But then DC and Marvel hopped on. Now DC and Marvel also make digital versions of this. You know, obviously they had to yeah. work together, but it's interesting because it's like sort of medium third company that realized that digital since Kindles were taking off and e-reading 
obviously comic books are going to follow suit. Yep. And they have been. In some ways, I mean, this raises questions for the publication industry after, as time moves forward again. I mean, obviously it costs a different dimension, different amount of money to, to produce a physical book. Revenue. Right, versus a digital. And, and uh, you know, I almost lament more like the, the digitalization of comic books than I do of not. I don't care if books are out, like paper books. Right. That's fine with me, you know. Um, more so than, than comics. I mean, there's something about holding a comic book to me and reading it. Uh, I don't know if it's the, the, the pictorial nature of it or what. I mean, again, I've, I've read my fair share of digital comics as well, but I, I just sort of do better with, with the actual the, the physical medium. I know some people do better with the physical medium of textbooks too, but mm-hmm. um, even that, I mean, it's interesting to think about what are we going to see in the next 10 years. I mean, right. obviously, digital I mean, we, Our tastes might evolve. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. you know, people... You know, even just the way you grow up, I think, really, really changes the way you look at certain objects. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, whether yeah. you have an interest in books, so you know how you like to digest information. Right. So without a doubt, you know the the types of media that we have and the tools we have to access that media will change the way we engage the media itself. Yeah, for sure. Me, you know. And you know, because the thing is a good thing, you know, because one of the things that, that's been sort of circling around the comics blogosphere is that we're going to see the, the physical stores close. Like we saw Borders do for bookstores uh, around the United States and Barnes & Noble. I mean, they've closed most of their doors. There's right. still some. And Newberry Comics. Newberry Comics. Around, but, right, in Boston. Yeah, yeah. And so we, But they, they sell different things. I mean, they're oh, yeah, persisting off of, yeah, yeah, CDs, merchandise, any type of other thing you could right. see connected to comics. But Which, that's actually interesting to think about by itself, right? What things right. do we see in a Newberry comic store? Clothing, CDs, records, ear gauges, right. ukuleles, Socks. It's a whole environment. You know, yeah, it's, it's almost similar to all the app, different types of Apple products. Right. Right. Well, kind of a, <laughs> system that exactly. A yeah. micro, uh, microcosm of a particular material culture, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that's, it, it, what's interesting about that too to, to think is, is that, uh, you know, what kind of, yeah, what kind of microcosm is this being thrown? And how did that particularly, that particular, particular microcosm come about? Right. Because it's very specific. I mean, I, I do. I shop at comic shops, but I don't go there to buy my shoes or my overalls or my suspenders. You know, maybe, I, mean, maybe I should. You know, I, I could though. You know, I mean, it's like you know, I, I, if I want to play ukulele, I can get one there now. I see, which is interesting. You know, I get my my coasters or my Batman coffee mugs or something. Buy some gloves. Yeah, it's true. All sorts, all sorts of cool stuff. Howling costume, cosplay, uh, yeah. type of things. It's interesting of like and uh, posters, overall, posters, yeah. posters too. And that's interesting also if you think about you know the different ways we engage stuff. I mean, I definitely. Uh, you know, from near Newberry Comics, I'll walk in and I really don't buy much at all there, but I'll just mm-hmm. look at things in the store. Yeah, right? yeah, I'll digest, you know, comics in the store. I'll look at posters. You know, I'll have this experience of media, uh, which you know doesn't even involve uh, purchasing. Right. You know, it's just the experience itself. I mean, I know, you know, for a couple of my friends, just going and looking through all the posters. Yeah. At Newberry Comics, uh, is almost you know just a ritual see it and that's interesting too right because that is a visual format and you're moving uh the frame Mm -hmm. more or less when you go from uh poster to poster yeah that's true i mean it's one of the things that strikes me about about this comic medium too and because at the store itself you know you can uh they tend to sell a newberry that we know of like they'll either sell the individual issues which are about 24 pages right or they'll sell the collected you know these are the these are the last six or 12 issues together uh but there's something about again that medium that you know, you get that one once a month, once a week, whenever it comes out. That you got your twenty-four pages, and you have to wait for the next That's installment. In this, in some ways, for us, I mean, it has its roots. If you think about this, it used to happen in English newspapers. Right, right. like parts oh, yeah. of stories, and you have to wait. Yeah, like Charles really, Dickens. Yeah, it's like Charles uh, Dickens, right? A really great way to sell newspapers. Yeah, exactly. Right? And Penny then it press. was a, it was a good way to motivate very long books being written. 
Yeah, because you, you just know, keep going. Yeah. by the word, which uh, is why we have, you know, Halo 2 cities. <laughs> exactly. I mean, even Stephen King, he wrote The Green Mile in uh, six different parts. And he would mm-hmm. release them, you know, every other month or so for uh, about a year. Yeah, it's interesting that I mean, comics have adopted this model, and uh-huh. sometimes you know we, we kind of forget. It's like this is this is the Charles Dickens, or the Pickwick Papers, or the oh, or yeah. The, yeah, like that 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 thought of this, you know, in that uh, you know we may not put. I mean, actually, I think there is actually a Tale of Two Cities graphic novel now. Um, you know, I mean, some of these will pick up the Dickens thing, but the idea that like there's just they, they, there's a time element to these reading things. You, know, mm-hmm. you can't you can't do it all at once. You have to you know obviously yeah, you can yeah. like go back thirty years and read up to catch up, but you know if you want to get up to now, and the, what's being pressed today, it's, you know, you have to wait your week, your month, and it's very interesting. It's a timeline. Yeah, and that, it's fascinating also, because there are so many, you know, amazing uh, and varied, you know, cultural topics within these comics, mm-hmm. right? But then at the bottom line, there is this kind of economic incentive, you yeah. know, in the framework of how they're, they're produced, and yet the ideas can be so, you know, varied from it. Right. And that's the thing, I mean, again, you know, the... Uh, and almost what we, you know, to kind of circle back around, like, you know, the, the origins that we come from, you know, do not entirely dictate the outcome of the events, you know, no matter what no. they are. We can all come oh, yeah. from the same origin, but then life or whatever, the story yeah. changes. And even thinking again about the fact that these these stores, right, Newberry Comics or any other comic store out there, they're not just selling you one version of any particular character. Right. You see different versions of Wolverine, of Green Lantern, of Batman, of Superman, of Catwoman, of Wonder Woman of uh, you know, so many characters. It's choose your own character. Choose the one that calls out to you. Mm-hmm. You can almost build your own universe of characters. Of uh-huh. Yeah. You know, depending on your purchase or your engagement with the material. Exactly. Pretty good, yeah. Um, well, guys, I think we're, we're pretty close to time. Um, but that was a good episode. I think yeah. you know, we went from uh, you know, art to morality to archetypes. <laughs> you know, through comic form and you know all types of different communicate human communication. Pieta right. to gender to to the comics around the world to animate to exactly. Uh, you know, I love being an archaeologist today, but I would love to be an archaeologist in a thousand years, <laughs> finding the artifacts of Batman shrine on the old Kindle somewhere. Yeah, exactly, this figure appeared prominently throughout this entire culture. They worshipped a man bat. <laughs> Strange, strange people yeah. they were. Yeah, how, how are they tied two and two together? <laughs> exactly. Particularly again, if, if writing has changed specifically, you know, all we have are these images. Sure. Exactly. Who was this? Who was this? This Batman. And why was he paired with a bird? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> strange, strange ideas. And why is his underwear different color from his pants on the outside? Strange stylistic choice those people wore. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave. We'll leave it on that, friends. But uh, thanks for joining for this Anthropological Life. This is Adam Gamewell. This is Ryan Collins. And this is Neil Chapati. Have a good week, guys. See you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 